Crispin here on the North Shore Vineyard Church audio podcast. Today on the podcast, we kick off a series looking into the book of Genesis. And this first message is entitled Order Out of Chaos. And this is Genesis chapter 1 and 2 that we're going to be looking at, kind of a flashpoint for a lot of controversy within the culture. In other news, we have uh, Financial Peace University kicking off in about a week and a half. You can sign up for that contacting us, uh, signing up at the church. We also have some outreaches coming up, all kinds of things that you can find on our Facebook page or at NorthShoreVineyard.org. But for now, let's go ahead and head to the talk. North Shore Vineyard Church, downtown Covington. Thanks for listening. Well, uh, this morning, I'm going to do two things that I haven't done at this church. I'm going to actually use a presentation. A little bit, a little bit. The problem is, I don't know what slides go with what I'm saying, so Margaret, I'm glad you're back there, because Margaret pays attention to words, and she just throw up anything that matches what I say, and that's the way this presentation's going to work. <laughs> Uh, the second thing is I'm doing a series on Genesis. I've, I've been mentioning to, to folks the last couple of months that uh, I've been working on a series on Genesis. And uh, the last six months, I've been reading a lot of books on Genesis, commentaries, Bible scholarship, been watching a lot of lectures from different professors from different fields. And uh, I'm really excited about this. I think we're going to, to find that this ancient book has some things to teach us today, has some things that can help us orient our life in the right direction. Um, But I got to tell you, I'm a little apprehensive about doing Genesis because when it comes to the first chapter of Genesis, man, this has like been where most of the fights seem to have happened between religion and science over the last, I mean, as long as I've been a Christian, and it it was going on long before that. But before I get into all that, uh, I'm going to go ahead and read the first chapter today. You don't, you don't have any scripture on the front of your bulletin like you normally would because it was too much. I, I could do it at like a font five, but I figured you wouldn't be able to read it anyway. Be like album lyrics on cassettes. Remember that, people? I used to be able to read album lyrics on cassettes. Cassettes were these cool things, kids, that we had. So... Genesis chapter 1, we're going to start in the beginning. We will probably be in this series for a few months. We may take a break and then do something else, but this, we're probably going to spend a lot of time in Genesis. And, uh, but anyway, here we go. Genesis chapter 1, and I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was formless, void, was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Some, some translate that, then the Spirit of God moved over the deep. The same word for spirit is the same word for wind, and the same word for breath, by the way. little editorial there. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the, day, called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening. And there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be a dome in the midst of the waters and let it be separated 
Let it separate the waters from the waters. So God made the dome and separated the waters that were under the dome from the waters that were above the dome. And it was so. And God called the dome sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the sky be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the waters were gathered together. He called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth put forth vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees of every kind on earth that bear fruit with the seed in it. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed of every kind, and trees of every kind bearing fruit with seed in it. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them be signs for the seasons and for the days and the years, and let them be lights in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the dome of the sky. So God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves of every kind with which the waters swarm and every winged bird of every kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters of the sea and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures of every kind, cattle and creeping things and wild animals of every kind. And it was so. And God made the wild animals of the earth of every kind and cattle of every kind and everything that creeps on the ground of every kind. And all the leftover pieces he had, he put into this thing called a platypus. Just kidding. And God saw that it was good. (laughs) Then God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over the wild animals of the earth and over the creeping things that creep upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every Every living thing that moves upon the earth. God said, See, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for fruit for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he made, and indeed it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all their multitude. And on the seventh day God finished the work he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work they had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. All right, see you all later.
Well, like I was saying, I, when it comes to Genesis, I, I have been reluctant to talk about it because I just, I, I know, at least from where I come from, more of an evangelical background, when it comes to Genesis, when I, when I first became a Christian, I went to a Bible college up in Dallas, Texas, and I went to a creation science museum, and I took, I took classes on young earth creationism. I, I know the whole deal. And, but I know that, that this is a place where, where, where people tend to fight a lot about what these verses mean. And, 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 the, and unfortunately, Genesis chapter 1 has come to be this thing that divides people between those who are, are followers of God or, or believe in the Bible and those who uh, are, are followers of reason and science. And so I've kind of neglected, I, I've had a lot of thoughts on Genesis for a long time, but I've neglected to really get into them because I feel like it's been such a hot-button issue, and sometimes on the hot-button issues, if you say anything that uh, contradicts maybe popular p- opinion, uh, sometimes people just, their defenses go up. But what I'm going to say today is that I don't think that the way that Genesis has been read predominantly in, in the evangelical or fundamentalist versions of the church, I don't think that it is really what was intended by the text at all. And what we're going to find out today is that Genesis is not really dealing with science at all. It's dealing with something else. It's saying something else. And really what it's saying is, is very important, but in a whole different kind of way. You know, um, when I was... At SLU, I, I, I studied history. I got my degree in history. And one thing that I found in, in studying history was that if you're going to, uh, if, you, if you find an ancient text, say from Greece or India or China, and you want to find out what this text means, you don't just interpret the text. You don't just find out what the words mean. You actually look for the texts that appear in the surrounding region and the surrounding culture from the same time. And when you do this, you, you get an idea not for just what your text says, but what the people in that world thought. And that's a huge thing. Because our problem is, as modern Americans, we look at the Bible, we've just been told, like, just read the Bible, and, and, and anybody can read it, and you can understand it. And we tend to read it, but we project the things that are important to us onto the text. And I think that's one of the big problems. We need to actually find out what the text actually meant to the original people so that we can then find how that applies to us, not impose what we think is important on the text just because that's what it appears to mean to us. You with me? So, so for instance, uh, in the New Testament, there's a phrase that, that occurs on a few occasions, Jesus is Lord. And most people, we read that and we're like, okay, I agree with that statement. Jesus is Lord. All right. But if you, if you study... Roman history from the first century, you'll find out that if, if you were living in Jerusalem in the first century and you went to the market to buy something, you would take one of these coins out of your pocket and it would have the face of the Caesar on it and it would say, Caesar is Lord. So what was the early church doing? They were t- taking the propaganda of the empire and they were actually turning it around saying, no, Caesar's not Lord, Jesus is Lord. This was a subversive statement. This is why the church was persecuted, by the way. Stuff like that. (laughs) 
So that little bit of information is really important, right? If we really want to understand what is being said in the Bible, we ought to pay attention to the history and, what, and the mindsets and what was actually going on in the cultures at the time. Unfortunately, when it comes to Genesis, we don't do that. Much of the way that, that uh, a lot of evangelicals in America tend to look at Genesis uh, is based on fundamentalism that sprung up in the, in the mid-1800s. And fundamentalism, as I said a few weeks ago, uh, was a reaction to the Enlightenment. So you had all these advances in science and philosophy and psychology, and probably the biggest thing was Darwin's publishing of, of The Origin of Species, and the church just felt like, man, everybody's becoming an atheist. We need to circle the wagons. And, and so fundamentalism started popping up on the scene in America, and, and people... This idea that, that the, the Bible needs to be read literally became a popular idea. And it's still a popular idea to this day. But oftentimes when we say read the Bible literally, what we mean is literally in English. <laughs> because if you're truly going to read something literally, you need to respect the genre that it is. So you don't read poetry like you read law documents, right? Right, Al? Am I good? And you don't want a lawyer that writes law documents like poetry, Right? That's <laughs> poetry is open to interpretation. Law documents, you don't want those open to interpretation. You want them defined as much as possible. So I've seen this problem both as a college pastor, when I was a college pastor at SLU, and I've seen it over the years of, of ministry, is that oftentimes kids who are raised, particularly in, in, in more fundamentalist homes, uh, grow up being taught the, the Genesis story in a very literal way, like, like the, the, the earth is only six to 10,000 years old. Then they get to college, and in freshman biology or freshman um, astronomy or, or earth science, uh, they're con- you know, presented like pretty convincing proof that the earth is actually a lot older than 10,000 years. And it's a point where many people begin to lose their faith. Have you, any of y'all played that game Jenga before? Jenga is this game where you got all these blocks that you stack up and you try to like take pieces out with knocking it over. But but I, I think if you think of Jenga, I think for many people, and I've seen this over and over, they get to freshman biology, freshman earth science class, and they get bombarded with all this information that is hard to refute, by the way. And it's like taking one of those pieces of Jenga out of the bottom of the tower, and if their faith doesn't collapse, then it's on the road to collapsing. And I see this over and over again. And I think that's why it's a, it's, a, it's a sad thing to me that Genesis 1 has become the center of this debate because, as I'm going to show you today, I don't think Genesis 1 has anything to do with the age of the earth. I don't think that's what, was, I don't think that's what the authors were intending to say at all. And so I'm going to try to make that case. Here we go. <laughs> Game on. <laughs> You know, Dina and I have had a, had a chance to travel around the country a lot due to me doing music and ministry, and oftentimes when we're traveling to some new place, we will get put up in a host home. Uh, we'll, we'll stay with somebody we've never known, and, and, uh, and it's always an interesting experience. Sometimes it's, it's frightening and it's terrible, but most of the time it's pretty good. <laughs> and 
when we stay with somebody for the first time, oftentimes we will ask them about their home. Like, tell us about this, this place you got here. And people will walk us around the house and, you know, they'll say, oh, we wanted this kitchen in here with this lovely island because we, we like people to gather and share meals and have conversations. So this was really a big deal that we would have this thing in here. And then, of course, Bob has his man cave. And, you know, he's got a pool table down there. And I don't know what Bob does down in there, but that's his special room. And, and Bob's like, yeah, that's my place. And then Susie's like, and my favorite spot is this little nook in the window where I can look out and read my devotionals and see the birds playing in the fountain outside. And that, that's the way people tend to describe their homes, right? That's an origin story of sorts, but it's not the origin of the house. It's the origin of the home, right? You with me? I've never met somebody who said, yeah, let me tell you about my house. You know, we poured the foundation. We made sure we had double the rebarb in our foundation. And then we, you know, we put some uh, six-by-eights in the wall, and we, we did this thing and that thing. I mean, maybe if I was a contractor, some guy would tell me a little bit of that. But honestly, we don't care about that stuff, do we? Because that's not what makes a house cool. I mean, Andy, you design houses. You design houses very well, but you design them so people can make them homes, not that they're just monuments to house building. <laughs> we, we want them to be homes. And, 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 and I, I think when you look at the different types of origin stories, we need to ask the question is, when it comes to Genesis 1, what type of origin story is this? Is this an origin story of material origins, the house? Or is this an origin story about the home? You know, I'm a big fan of science. Uh, in my spare time, I like to read physics and things like that. Oh, my gosh, it sounds so boring. But uh, I, I really do. I love physics, quantum physics. I love uh, cosmo- cosmology. I love that stuff. And, and physics is really good at answering the material or, or at least grappling with the material origin story. So physics says the, the origin story of our world is that Somewhere about 13.8 billion years ago, there was this all matter in the whole universe was compressed into a, a tiniest, the, the infinitely small, dense place that was called the singularity. It wasn't even a place. It's just a concept. This thing called the singularity. And then all of a sudden, for some reason, it exploded in this big bang. It didn't really explode, but we have what was called cosmic inflation. And then everything from stars to galaxies to Earth came out of this thing. Well, that's an origin story, but that's the origin story of the house. What the Bible talks about is the origin story of the home. And so it makes a difference what you're trying to communicate. And if you lived in the ancient Near East where, you know, the Jewish people and these stories came from, uh, nobody would have questioned Material. Where does material come from? That was not what anybody thought of because there was no such thing as science back then. Science has only been around for a few centuries, guys. They weren't thinking scientifically back then at all. So they weren't interested in where did the material that makes up this stand come from because for them, for anybody, whether you're Babylonian or Sumerian or Egyptian or Hebrew, you would assume that if anything existed, it only existed because the gods created it. And it was created for the gods. And it was uh, anything that happened was willed by the gods. So that was the world of the ancient Near East. And, and we can figure this out, by the way, going back to history. The good thing about the Hebrew Bible is 
the oldest texts in the world that have survived until now were written in ancient Mesopotamia. Same world that, that the Hebrew people inhabited. The oldest document, which I'll probably reference sometime, I just read it recently, called the Epic of Gilgamesh. It's like it predates the, the Bible by about 1,200 years, I think. Uh, and it's the oldest written thing on clay tablets. But we can look at these ancient cultures and we can figure out that they had certain ideas about gods and certain ideas about human beings and creation. And we can kind of deduce because they all lived in the same world and they all had the same framework of of thinking. I mean, Mexico and Canada are different from the United States, but if somebody were studying us from 5,000 years out, they would find that Mexicans, Canadians, and Americans, we all tend to think, you know, pretty, you know, along the same lines on, on at least standard kinds of things. And that, that, that same kind of thing can be applied to this. So, So what we see going on in the book of Genesis, particularly the first chapter, and, and really, I could do this whole thing in about two and a half hours, so I'm having to really condense what I'm saying today, <laughs> but I'll try to at least introduce the, the first part of this. Um, what we see in Genesis is not that God is creating material, but that God is taking created material and bringing order out of the chaos. So if you were going to say you were going to build a home 20 miles north of town and you found some piece of property that's just wooded and, and wilderness, uh, you would go in there, you would cut down some trees, you'd, you'd cut in a road, you would start doing things. And really that's similar to what God is doing in this passage if we can pay attention. So this is a home story. If Genesis 1 was about material creation, it would have started with no material. But the starting point is not verse 1. The starting point is in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth. That's actually more like the introduction to the chapter. And we know it's the introduction because at the end of the chapter it says, and thus God, at the end it says, at the end of seven days, God created the heavens and the earth. So we have these two, the the intro and the outro and the stuff in between. But in verse 2, it says, the earth was formless and void. So we already have the earth there before God creates anything. It's already there. Um, It doesn't tell you how it got there. And by the way, God doesn't seem to be too worried about teaching science to people. (laughs) We don't find the Bible taking stances on science. That's why I've never had much of a problem resolving my love for science with my, my love for faith because I don't, I don't see them in conflict at all because I don't think the Bible is addressing anything scientific. I think that's one of the things I love about God is that God has left all this stuff for us to discover as human beings. The earth was formless and void. There is already a set there. Genesis 1 Verse 3, it says, God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. Why didn't God call the light light? Why did he call the light day? Well, God's not creating anything, (laughs) anything material. God is actually creating time. And the way that people understand time, particularly in the ancient Near East, is day and night. So in the first day of creation, we actually have the creation of time. Its first step in bringing order out of chaos is to create time. 
Time is not an object. God is not creating an object on the first day. And this shows that God is concerned with something other than material creation. Day two is weather. In the ancient world, as I read today, they they conceived of this thing that, that sometimes is translated the firmament. But in the ancient world, they when they looked up at the sky, they saw the sky is blue and it seems to be like a dome shape, and the and, and the sun seems to do this trajectory like in a dome. And so they called this thing like a dome in the sky or like the firmament. And it was it was imagined by them because it was blue like the waters that, and because rain came out of it, that this thing was uh, like there was it was actual physical substance up there. It was an actual hard substance, and there was something else up there. And so in this creation account, we see that God carves out this space between and separates the waters above from the waters below. And, and this, is, this is the verses where we find out about weather. And so this is, in, the, in verse 1, we have, I mean, in, in day 1, we have time. In day 2, we have weather. And then in day 3, we find out that God separates the waters from the earth, and then we have plant life coming up. We have the, the system of agriculture. God actually puts that in place. So we have food, I mean, we have time on day one, weather on day two, and food on day three. And these are, are still the three, three things that most people talk about, right? I, I imagine some of you out there hanging out on the patio today, you talked about the weather. <laughs> and like good Louisianans, you talked about food. And you'll go to a restaurant later, and you'll talk about food while you're eating, because that's what we do down here. But what we're seeing in this story is not so much that God is creating material. The material is already creating, but God is bringing order to it. God is doing something. He's bringing uh, functionality to it. He's creating a system in which everything can prosper and serve a purpose. So when we get to verses 4, 5, and 6, we see the functionaries. We see the sun and the moon, and this is the seasons. So we have time, we have weather, we have food, we have seasons, so they could observe the festivals. And then we have functionaries. We have the animals, and we have human beings placed in the garden with a purpose. And we're going to get more to that later, because that's a different message. But then we come to the seventh day. And it says on the seventh day that God rested from all the work that he'd done on those seventh days. Has that ever struck you weird that, like, why does God need to rest? Like, if God is capable of creating everything, why does he need to rest? Well, again, this is because we don't understand it the way the original people would have had it. Uh, You can look in other ancient Near East literature. I think I've got, what's the next slide look like? Yeah, let's go to the next one. (laughs) You see these things here? These are the... Gudia cylinders of ancient Samaria. These are some of the oldest examples of, of human writing that have ever been uncovered. And on these cylinders, they actually record the dedication of a temple in ancient Samaria, and it was a seven-day temple dedication. You go, you can read in the Bible about Solomon's temple. Solomon spent seven years building his temple. And then he had a seven-day dedication of the temple. But the temple wasn't really considered a temple until God inhabited it. And what happens on the seventh day of the dedication of Solomon's temple? 
the Holy Spirit shows up. God shows up like a cloud and fills the temple, and people just fell down because the glory of God was so intense they couldn't stand it. What we have going on in Genesis, the seven days, that's temple language. And that's the whole point of Genesis 1 is it's not to tell you how old the earth is or that God created all the material. Yes, God created all the material. That's not the point. The point is that what God is doing here is actually making a temple for himself, a dwelling place. That's what a temple was in the ancient world, by the way. Whatever God you worshipped, uh, even outside of Christ, I mean, Judaism or whatever, uh, if you were Sumerian and you built a temple for your deity, it was a home for your deity. That's the way people thought back then. So we have in Genesis 1, it is all these all these functions that God is putting in place, it is actually like someone who is building a house. But when God moves into it on the seventh day, it becomes a home. But here's the deal with rest. Rest, God was resting from the creating the house part, right? When you build a house and you move into it, you're done with that phase. But when God moves into the house, it is a matter not of resting from, you know, I'm not doing anything anymore. It is now now God is going to rule the world from within his temple. And so when we look at the Garden of Eden, it was a it was a space where God and humanity could live together. It was God's house, but we get to live in God's house with God. And this is important because all through the Old Testament, we find out the importance of the temple from the tabernacle of Moses that was brought through the exodus from Egypt to the promised land. The tabernacle was the one place where God was thought to dwell in the Holy of Holies. When they get to the promised land, eventually Solomon builds a temple and that temple was the one place on planet earth where God was thought to dwell. That was his house. And, 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 and we got to, and people got to go in there. Only a few people got to go in the Holy of Holies. When we come to the second temple, it's the same thing. And guess what? When you go to the last two chapters of Revelation, you see at the end of all this, God comes down, the, the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven to earth, and we see God is once again with his people, ruling and reigning. What started in a garden ends up in a city. But it's all about God dwelling with his people. That's the point of Genesis 1. It's not to tell you how old this place is or that God created it. Yes, God created the whole thing. But with this understanding in mind, yeah, it was, was it a literal seven days? Perfectly fine. We're not talking about the age of the universe here. We're talking about God's specific purpose of making a dwelling place on this earth for him and for humanity. And so, with this in mind, I don't think it matters what you believe on the science end of things. Believe science. Science is really good for figuring stuff out. I'm thankful for science. But here's the thing with science. Everybody who ever engages in science knows that whatever you discover now may very well be overthrown (laughs) in another 
10 years or 50 years or 100 years. And I think, it's, I think this is one of the problems when we come to Genesis because we try to make Genesis uh, harmonize with modern science, and modern science is always changing. So you might get Genesis to fit with certain ideas on physics right now uh, on, your, on a young earth view of creation, but eventually that science is probably going to be overturned by some other discovery. It's shaky ground, but that's not the point of the text. I'm going to close with a, a temple reading, a reading from a temple text that, that gives you a little idea of how the, the ancient Hebrews thought of the temple. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, the world and those who live in it. For he has founded it on the sea and established it on the rivers Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? Those who have clean hands and pure hearts, who do not lift up their souls to what is false, and do not swear deceitfully. They will receive blessing from the Lord, and vindication from God of their salvation. Such is the company of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Selah. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. Brandon, can I see your outline? I changed the outlines a bit before I... But I've got something on, on, probably on yours, if you got the right one. Yeah, you did. You get the right one. I got the old one. Why don't y'all stand? And I want to... Because as I'm reading this stuff, you may be wondering, okay, well, that's great. <laughs> What's the point? Some of you may have never struggled with, struggled with Genesis. Uh, like, okay, great. What's the point? Well, as I'm reading this stuff today and studying for this, I got to say, I think there is something unique within all of us that takes joy in bringing order to chaos. How many of y'all like to work out in flower beds? Yeah. If you like to work in flower beds, you're bringing order out of chaos. If you like to write songs, you are bringing order out of chaos. If you like to build buildings or make things or cook meals, these are divine things. We are created in the image of God. One way we bear forth the image of God is in our creativity, in that impulse to bring order. So my benediction, my prayer for you this week is, may you find the spirit in your desires to create, in your desires to bring order out of chaos. May you find the Lord's pleasure as you build, as you make, and create space to thrive. And may you flourish in the creation and as the creation of God in harmony with God and with others and with creation. Amen. Amen. Well, if anybody needs some prayer, if you've got any questions of things I've said and you want to shoot me down, that's fine. Uh, come up and, and we'll talk <laughs> or we'll pray. God bless you. See you next week.